Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. And joining me on the Movies Podcast, as always, is Simon Crest, Mark Portwright, Kaz Harlow, and Steve Weathers. Good evening, guys. Good evening. Evening, Phil. Uh, so we're uh, we're back for another Movies Podcast, and I guess the uh, the big story. Uh, news-wise, is that Jaws is finally going to come to Blu-ray, uh, which I think we've all been looking forward to. Um, I actually watched the documentary the other night about the restoration for the Blu-ray. Got me a little bit excited. So, uh, Steve, what dates is this due? Yes, yeah, due uh, out in the US on the on August the 14th, uh, and in the UK on September the 3rd. Not quite sure why there's a difference in release dates, but uh, there's a slight difference. So if you're desperate, like I probably will be at that point, um, you can buy it from the US, I guess, uh, or wait a couple of weeks and get it locally uh, in the UK. But uh, yeah, apparently they've done a, they've done a full. Uh, well, you saw a documentary, didn't you, Phil? So, well, stuck a new print from the original negative, and then did a restoration on it. Or well, they restored the negative, stuck a new print, and then did what, a 4K 4K restoration. Uh, Spielberg says it looks better than uh, he remembers it from the original theatrical release. That sounds good news to me. I mean, I hope uh, George Lucas is listening, frankly. Uh, that's how you should do a, a Blu-ray release. You know, do a proper restoration, do it properly, give people what they want. Uh, I can't wait to see it. I mean, it'll probably be look, as, as you just said, for it probably will look as good, if not better, than it did back in 75. Yeah, absolutely. Jaws, we've been looking forward to it since the advent of Blu-ray, have we not? Well, at least I have. Um, I wish I'd seen that, um, that uh, documentary. I've not, I've not seen that yet. And I've just um, having a, a surf around the web like we do to find these things. Digitally remastered and fully restored. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. 7.1 DTS HD MA soundtrack. How cool is that? Brand new documentaries. The shark is still working. The impact and legacy of Jaws. Of course it had an impact. It was, what, the first summer blockbuster? Can we, can we lay claim to that? It was the first summer blockbuster? What do you think? Yes, it was. Of course, looking forward to this. Can we hold out to the English one? We may have to do a comp- we may have to do both. We may have to do the American release and the UK release. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, well, that documentary is actually on Play's website. So if you go to uh, the product on Play.com and uh, the documentary is underneath it as a video that you can play on the page. Um, you, you can't ex- expand it to full frame, but you can definitely sit and watch it and listen to what they're saying about it. Uh, 7.1 soundtrack, brand new taken from the original elements uh, they've gone back through the archives and found uh, as many of the original effects uh, as they could and it's all been remixed retimed um, and there will be a mono one there for anybody that wants the original mono soundtrack uh, so looking good Kaz? Yeah of course I'm looking forward to it I, I can't imagine many people who won't be looking forward to this Blu-ray release um, it's it's yeah, it's got to be one that Blu-ray fans have been looking forward to since the advent of the format. And um, I, I can't imagine there's many people around who don't highly rate Jaws. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because it's uh, the first summer blockbuster and pretty much the whole of our podcast today is actually looking at recent summer blockbusters. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely one of those films... Um which can be playing on the TV, and if I happen to switch channels and it's on, I, I sit mesmerised and I have to watch the whole thing. I don't know if it has that effect on, on everybody else, but uh, it's just one of those films I never tire seeing. Yeah, I agree, Phil. It's uh, Well, it's a masterpiece, isn't it? Let's be honest about it. it not only was it well, the first time a blockbuster, but it, if you look at it, it, it's also Spielberg at the top of his game. Um, it's an absolutely brilliant piece of filmmaking, um, sometimes through intention, sometimes by circumstance, um, the whole use of the yellow barrels was because the shark didn't work, but it works even better when you don't see the shark. Um, and it also, it's, you know, it's intelligent filmmaking. It's really well written, really well acted, fantastic cast. No modern blockbuster would stop halfway through to do the Indianapolis speech. You wouldn't get that anymore. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a masterpiece. And I'm glad to see that they're doing a full restoration. They're including all the extras from the previous releases, plus new stuff, 
plus a new soundtrack, plus the original mono soundtrack for those who want to listen to that. That's how you do a, a reissue of a film on Blu-ray and not the rubbish we had off of Lucas last year. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm reasonably excited about it, probably not as much as, as you guys are. Um, it's, it's one of those films that, again, I kind of wish I was around at the time to have watched. I don't know whether it's just the fact that it's on TV so much when I was growing up and as a child that it's, shall we say, dulled my senses to it a bit. I mean, it's it's still, you know, an, an immensely powerful and it really does work. It's effective in, in drawing you in and getting you terrified and the like. But it is one of those films that, although I appreciate it, I, I do kind of look at it thinking, if only I could watch that completely fresh now so I could appreciate it totally as as a new experience i mean what it must have been like for the first audiences going in seeing that film you know it, it, it must have been absolutely breathtaking yeah it's it's one of those films um again kind of like uh, star wars first time around i think um from an experience point of view uh it has that it has that hold on people from that generation probably our generation uh if you're in your you know 30s and 40s you, you might remember it better than someone who's you know in their 20s and only saw it on tv i guess again you got to see it on the big screen and, and for a lot of people um we haven't had that opportunity for a long time well nearly 40 years actually yeah 75 isn't it so what's that 37 years uh, i mean i did see it at the cinema i was only a kid i was thinking, thinking about it now i was probably too young to go and see it to be honest but uh but yeah i saw it on the big screen back in 75 and um so, yeah, nearly 40 years is a hell of a long time. It's, it's staggering to think that the film is that old, actually. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for me, it's one of my all-time favourite films, and I, and I cannot wait to get the Blu-ray. You still do see that shark. You can't get away from that. You know, as as much as people say it's it's fantastic, and it is. I mean, it, it's it's solid. We're kind of quibbling over it. Is it, you know, a 9 or a 10 out of 10 film? Is it absolutely perfect um you still do see the shark it still does should we say draw away that facade and it's it, it it breaks the spell slightly i think it it's even though scenes with the shark work because you've such got such great actors as a kind of counterbalance to it and they lend an air of validity to it but had you seen that shark with a bunch of hammy b movie actors I think people would be perhaps a bit more damning and, and remember it a bit more. I, I think if the shark had been working, um, it, it might have been a different film. Yeah, I agree. It would have been a lesser film, I think, if the shark had been working the way they intended it to work. They'd have had a lot more shots of the shark. In actual fact, you hardly ever see the shark because it didn't work. And the only shot really where it looks particularly fake is at the end when it's eating Quint. Um, although, as a child, when blood spurts out of his mouth, I found that genuinely shocking. Um, and really was quite distressed by it. You know, I was only eight, so I probably was too young to see it, frankly. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that scene, I didn't think the shark looked fake. I thought, oh, my God, is it just bitten him in half? Is he really dying? Uh, I found it really quite distressing. That's the brief news this month. Uh, we're going to stick to just the one title, uh, which is Jaws, which is coming soon, and uh, I guess you're going to hear lots more about it on, on podcasts as we get closer to release date. And then, obviously... Um, once Chris gets online, I think it's one of Chris's favourite films of all time. So we've got more Jaws coming for you, folks. So, so don't worry, future podcasts, it will be covered. Uh, we're going to move on to Mission Impossible next. The highest definition. 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 This is the AV Forums podcast. So we'll move over to Kaz for our first review of this podcast. And uh, Kaz, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. Count me as thoroughly surprised. I, I I thought the Mission Impossible series was looking pretty dead in the water, and um, and when I heard about Ghost Protocol, I thought it was a little bit like the new uh, Bourne movie. It was going to be a, a spin-off of Mission Impossible featuring a different lead actor and a a sort of equivalent role to Tom Cruise's role. Um, but it turns out Ghost Protocol is yet another Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie, and is uh, in many respects and a lot of people's opinions uh, arguably the best of the entire series i'd certainly put it up there with the best of the series um and it's it was one of the surprise hits of last year coming in right at the tail end of the year 
um, kind of a sleeper winter summer blockbuster. Um, and uh, that really impressed me. I, I saw it back uh, at IMAX and was totally blown away um, by the shots, particularly of the of the Burge that looked um, pretty impressive. It's come out on Blu-ray now, and the Blu-ray, don't get me wrong, is stunning. The video and audio are unequivocally demo quality all the way. Uh, but there are some issues with this disc. Uh, you've got to wonder why they didn't do a Dark Knight and open up the aspect ratio of the video to encompass the IMAX shots. Instead, we get uh, 2.35 all the way through, and I think it would make a difference, and I don't know why they didn't do it. You've also got to wonder why they've given you next to no extras. The majority of extras available are only available on a, on a Best Buy exclusive disc, and even those are only a few featurettes and a few deleted scenes. And we just get a teaser of those, like a couple of featurettes and a couple of those deleted scenes. Um, I'm not really sure where they're going with this other than in a, in a souped-up release somewhere later down the line. But there are issues with this release. Unfortunately, for those who haven't seen the movie and for those who love the movie, I, I can't see you staying away from this because it's, it's one of the most fun spectacles of last year. Um, a real surprise movie for me. I didn't expect it to be this good. And very, most certainly reinvigorated the Mission Impossible series. So much so that they're, they're already up there talking about doing the next film. I was going to say, because um, Brad Bird directed it, who obviously is better known for doing animation, for doing um, The Incredibles and Ratatouille and The Iron Man. Um, uh, not Iron Man. <laughs> Sorry, the Iron Giant. Not Iron Man. The Iron Giant. Um, uh, so how did the how did he handle transition from um, from animation to live action? I I think it it was seamless. I couldn't. Uh, I could obviously tell that this was inspired and informed from his experience on The Incredibles. Um, I think I wrote in the review that it's Mission Impossible done in the style of The Incredibles. But it's really not a bad thing at all because it doesn't feel like an animated movie. It feels like a guy who's got limitless uh, ideas to bring to his movies, which he did for The Incredibles, taking them to big screen action movies and doing things which we really haven't seen before. I mean, some ridiculous heights he was working with, with IMAX lenses, with an actor who is actually prepared to go out on the outside of these buildings and do these stunts. Uh, it's really impressive. And with a director who has an eye for the fantastic, um, it works out really well. Also, I think that Bird's familiarity with the Incredibles plot of bringing a family back together under you know, difficult circumstances is an element brought to Mission Impossible because across the whole series of films before him, they've never really fully encompassed the old Mission Impossible team spirit and and this is what we get here just go back to your point about uh aspect ratios um i'm glad they haven't done that because it really annoys me i've got a constant height setup on a scope screen i don't want it opening out to 1.78 to 1 it's a gimmick it might work in an imax screen but it's not going to work at home I, I found the fact they do that on the dark night incredibly annoying uh, but luckily i can blank the top and bottom and, and make your ratio 2.35 to 1 for the entire movie without having it open up the uh, aspect 1.78 to 1. But personally, I think it's just an appalling gimmick that might well work in an IMAX cinema, but doesn't work on a disc. So for me, that's a plus point, actually. Yeah, I've got to agree with you there, Steve. Um, last thing I would want is is another Dark Knight thing. Um, uh, and I do the same with the Dark Knight. I blank the top and bottom uh, and watch it 235, which is the way it was framed. So... Um, uh, and which is the way it is on Blu-ray, uh, not Blu-ray, DVD. So, yeah, I'm quite happy with that. I've got to ask one question back at you both. Uh, if if you both have the ability to take uh, a video presentation which alternates aspect ratios and make it constant, why would there be a problem with releasing it with a variable aspect ratio so that people who want to see it opened up can. Because you're not really seeing it opened up because nobody has an iMac screen at home and you might have a, a big projector screen but as soon as it goes back to 235 the, the image actually gets smaller whereas with a constant image height system the, the image is always the same uh, same size and you're not constantly swapping between one and another. 
that's why in my opinion and also if you don't have the ability to blank i mean fern i can blank the top and bottom of the screen to keep the ratio 2.35 to 1 but if you're someone who's, who's zooming it up to fill a scope screen but can't blank the top and bottom i've got a friend who does that it means that he can see outside of the screen area the extra bits that that on the 1.78 to 1 ratio parts of it which he finds really annoying he's only obviously the only just does that at the moment um, well, there's two discs actually. There's Transformers 2, the US Best Buy release, and there's obviously the Dark Knight. Um, he's got the Dark Knight, and for him, it, it kind of ruins the experience entirely. He'd rather just have it in its correct. It was framed for 2.35 to 1. You can see that when you watch it. So really, as I said, it's it's a gimmick that might be fun to see in an IMAX cinema, where you've got the gigantic screen and everything, and you get that kind of vertigo-inducing shots from the Burj Khalifa. But uh, yeah, at home, it, I think it borders on just being gimmicky. Uh, and I, I would rather just kept the correct aspect ratio that it was framed for and rather than, than blowing it out to the wider aspect ratio for those scenes that were shot on IMAX cameras. But, but I mean, obviously, you like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, I, I don't have a projector, so I don't have the same issues. And I, I do prefer the, the that wider format. And I see what you mean about them intending it to be suitable for a 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio. But obviously the scenes they shot in IMAX, they intended to also be um, broader shots. And I think that's what we miss out on. I certainly yeah, noticed not, the difference watching it again on Blu-ray, having seen it at the IMAX. I can see how it must be irritating for someone who where the aspect ratio fluctuates. But I, I, I noticed that it felt different watching it on blu-ray with a sort of a constant 2.35 to 1 it, it still looked impressive the picture quality is still impressive and it's the scale is still fairly impressive but it just didn't look as impressive and i can appreciate that it must completely blow you away on imax it's never going to look like that at home but i i think that the dark knight scenes for me had that little bit of an extra edge and it would have been nice if they'd have tested the ground with with mission impossible or at least maybe given people a choice um, as you say, that if there was a Best Buy release of Transformers that did it, that, you know, they they could have had that for the be the same for Mission Impossible, but they didn't. You know, the Best Buy release has different extras for some unknown reason, but it's still got a constant aspect ratio. I, I just find this whole different aspect ratios IMAX thing, which be Nolan started with the Dark Knight, really annoying. It's I, I did see the Dark Knight in IMAX. Um, and, and I just found the constant changing of aspect ratios to be a gimmick that was took me out of the film. It didn't actually make it more of experience. I just found it to be annoying because I'd rather just watch the film in the aspect ratio that it's... Because you're saying, you know, that they obviously frame it for 2.35 to 1 because that's the ratio it's going to predominantly be seen in. Um, and they might open up... The, you know, they obviously, when they're shooting with IMAX cameras, they open up a bit, but they're still keeping one eye on the scope screen ratio because that's what it's going to predominantly be seen in. And it just seems that, you know, I think no one had a cheek to call 3D a gimmick when he's doing something that's way more gimmicky at the moment with this messing around with IMAX uh, ratios and cutting between the, you know, one ratio and the other within the same film. I just think that just takes me out of it, to be honest. You see, Bird was arguing, though, during the making of Mission Impossible that he thinks that IMAX is one of the last vest vestiges of a, of a classic format of cinema. Uh, of providing a spectacle for people rather than giving them glasses and, and giving them a gimmick. And I, no, I, I, tend, I, I tend to go more in that direction because in IMAX, the scenes in Mission Impossible, I, I, didn't, I didn't see Dark Knight in, in the IMAX, so I, I don't know what those scenes would have been like. But in Mission Impossible, they're very much to do with the height of buildings, to do with great distances to fall and to do with... Uh, grand explosions in the background with Tom Cruise running away from them. I mean, they 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 work, and uh, I I've seen them in, in, with a two point three five to one aspect ratio, and I know it's not even a cinema style screen, but it's it's just it's not as impressive. So I think those they didn't take me out of the movie. They just hooked me in. And if anything, I would have wanted the whole thing to be shot in IMAX. It's just a shame that the that the cameras are so damn loud. So, so, I mean, I don't disagree with the point that, that IMAX screens are, um, you know, a spectacle, and they're basically a large frame format film. Um, shooting in them, for, I mean, shooting an entire film, which people do do, uh, mostly documentaries, um, you know, it's great. You know, but that's clearly just designed for an IMAX cinema. You have to think about the, the wider, you know, market and the fact they're going to mostly be seen in, in, in multiplexes. 
Um, and, and for me, I, I like the films to be in a 2.35 to 1 ratio. That's that's cinema to me. And, and IMAX isn't. My IMAX is closer to, well, 1.78 to 1, I guess. Or even, actually, I think it's more like 4 to 3. Um, so so for me, that's, that's, that's kind of, again, it's a gimmicky, large format um, film stock that's used um used for um what well, i guess would, would have been called the old days road shows um in specific imax theaters but but we're, uh, you know. we're going to see this over the next year to 18 months um more and more of these different format um coming out so i mean we're looking at lord of the um not lord of the rings the hobbit um from jackson being at 48 frames per second uh, james cameron talking about doing avatar at 60 frames per second um, and then talking about Avatar, uh, when I saw it at the cinema, it, it was two, three, five to one. Yet Cameron says the right ratio was uh, one eight five to one, um, and that's what he released on disc. Yet everybody that I spoke to who saw it at the cinema saw it in two, three, five. So um, it seems to me there's a handful of directors who um, are doing this for gimmicks. In my opinion, um, it'll be interesting to see after the fallout of the ten minute preview of The Hobbit at 48 frames per second where um, there was a lot of criticism about it just didn't look right uh, where we'll be in 18 months once uh, these guys have a chance to show us their wares and then whether the public like it or not yeah well I mean The Dark Knight Rises has been a lot of that's being shot on IMAX I think about 40 minutes of it's going to be in IMAX um, so we're going to have that again in the summer with that film where it's cutting between ratios at an IMAX screen uh, well, the nearest IMAX screen to me is in London, so it's just not really an option to go and see one in IMAX. It would be interesting to see. I would have been curious to see Mission Impossible for the reasons that um, Cass has just mentioned. The whole thing with The Hobbit, though, which was really interesting because they, he just showed a 10-minute um, sort of demo reel at 48 frames per second in 3D for um, cinema, cinema owners, cinema chain owners um, at the recent convention last week. And uh, the, the general feedback was not good. People said it looked like really expensive video which is kind of what Phil and I had feared when we discussed this earlier on a, on a home cinema podcast um, a few months ago, that, you know, if you go from 24 frames a second, which is, you know, what we're used to seeing for film, um, whether you agree with 24 frames a second, because they chose that because it was the minimum they could get away with, because, you know, every second is, is a certain amount of film and film's expensive. And 24 frames a second is, is the limit where the human eye can see flicker. Whether you agree with that or not, it has a certain look to it. It's, 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 it's got, it looks like film. Uh, and, and that's a, a stylistic choice, an aesthetic choice, the same way that film grain is an aesthetic choice. You know, people shoot on digital now. You can have no grain at all, but it doesn't look like film. It looks like video. So they, they shoot in digital, and then they put the grain back in, in post, to make it look more film-like. Um, if you're shooting at 48 frames a second, it's going to have a smoother motion. It's going to look like when you watch um, movies with the true motion on, on, on a TV. You know, it has an un, unnaturally smooth motion to it. Um, which looks more like video and less like film. Um, now, Jackson's argument would be, you know, we can do this now, we should do it, it makes 3D better. But at the end of the day, you know, whether I'm being called a Luddite or, you know, I, I like film to look like film. That's, that's the whole point of film. I want to look at video, I can look at video, but I want my film to have film grain and to have uh, be shot at 24 frames per second because so, that is a, an aesthetic choice and a look that I like. Um, maybe you know in a couple of years we'll all get used to it and we won't care anymore. But uh, but certainly I I'm not yeah personally I I wish he hadn't done that because first of all the whole point was he was going to try to make the Hobbit lead into the Lord of the Rings. So if you're shooting it at 4K, 48 frames a second in 3D, it's not going to be anything like Lord of the Rings, is it? I mean it's going to be a completely different set of films now. I, I think he's dropped a clanger personally, but that's just just me. With regards things like um, differing aspect ratios, I can I can understand. That alongside IMAX cinemas and this 48 frames a second drive, because it's it's trying to differentiate cinema. It's trying to stop it dying. It's trying to stop this this creeping away of business towards you know. Well, I'll I'll just rent it in a couple of months. You know, stream it or whatever. I'll watch it at home. But I I worry that the the material that's utilising it won't age that well that it will fall into that um you know jaws 3d category of people kind of assuming that it's a little bit a little bit compromised artistically i mean the dark knight i i just i can understand the idea behind it because in an imax cinema it does work 
but when you're creating something that you realize won't work then for the majority it becomes a little bit odd to decide to do that and i also the shots that people keep telling me that they were wowed by that there was a sense of scale when it when everything opened up I, you know, I, I don't want to belittle the idea of, you know, the artistic talents that filmmakers have, but there used to be you would shoot in a particular way and then open up to a large vista. You can you can still do that in a fixed aspect ratio. You can still get that sense of wonder. There were still many great, you know, kind of 70 millimeter films, 2.35 to 1, where people, where audiences gasped at, at this sudden pullback and you would see you know, like with the great kind of sword and sandals, epics and the like, you still had that sense of scale. People still felt that in, you know, the, the Colosseum scenes in Gladiator and the like. It, it's not like you're pushed into this, this tiny little window, this little pillar box that you can't show scale with. You can still show scale. We know that. Um, and as I say, I, I just think that it's, the material may not age that well, but I'm, I'm I'm all for anything that might be be a bit of a, a shot in the arm for cinema as a whole. What, one of the gimmicks that did work back in the 90s, I don't know if you remember Galaxy Quest, um, it, they deliberately shot that, the, the opening reel at 185 to 1 to show that it was a, it was a TV programme. And then when they moved to the, the outer space scenes, um, the screen then opened up to 235 and that really did, I saw that at the cinema and that really did have an impact and it, I, I know in the DVD that they kept that so it, it went from uh, yeah, it was actually <clears throat> on the DVD it actually had the black bars top and bottom but um, it still had the same idea, it still had the, the, the 185 to 1 and then opening up to 235 to 1. Yeah I mean it, it can be done well but the, the whole idea of, of it being done in, in that particular situation they've they often utilise it a lot in, in things like video games, um, and you you see it in things like some music videos and the like. It it's almost it's drawing your attention to it and saying now it begins. It's it's something that should we say it works when you're actually drawing people towards it and and then they notice the shift. I that that's something that you're actually marking out there. If, if you want a continual two hour experience where I forget that I'm actually, you know, sat in an uncomfortable chair in a cinema, you know, fanning about with aspect ratios actually takes me out of that experience. That's just something that, you know, you may as well be just turning off the speakers on one side and then, you know, having an asterisk come down with a little torch. It just, it breaks the atmosphere for me. It, it's, it's a little reminder that what you're watching is just something that someone's tinkered about with and now it's being projected for you. Yeah, uh, really good points there, uh, Mark. I, I agree with you totally. Anything that takes you out of the movie is a bad idea. You know, The whole point is that you lose yourself in what it is that you're watching and 99.9% of the time that's what you do. I mean, uh, I, you know, when we review DVDs and Blu-rays and that kind of thing, I mean, we're taking extra notice of what the print uh, transfers like what the surround sounds like and so on but the whole point of surround sound is that it envelops you in such a way that it doesn't distract you um, and I think as, as reviewers sometimes uh, because you're listening so intently to how the sound mix has been done and so on the actual point of it is that um, you actually forget uh, it, the whole point is that you forget where you are and you're transported somewhere else and um, you know un unless you are a reviewer you don't really take that much notice you just let things wash over you yeah, no, I, I'd completely agree with that. Um, there is this always this slight temptation to to rate something if it's got a particularly um, whizzy sound effect. You know, a lot of people say, "Wow, I've really noticed the bass in you know this particular scene," whereas I actually think that's that's almost to the detriment of some Blu-rays. There are some people who love LFE heavy Blu-rays, but to me, if you've suddenly got that moment that everything becomes apparent that you suddenly realize that your subwoofer is sat in the corner of your room and you haven't noticed it integrated into the rest of the mix up to that point. That's not necessarily a great bonus. Yeah, the, I, I agree. You don't really want things thoroughly distracting you in movies. But when it comes down to experience, uh, maybe at the end of the day, it just comes down to where you've seen the movie. 
um, and there, there are strong arguments for uh, constant aspect ratio at home, for uh, the setup being favourable for projectors, and for um, embracing the notion that the format you're choosing will eventually be seen by the majority in a certain style. Um, but I, I, can't, I can't help but be reminded of the fact that I genuinely felt vertigo uh, watching Mission Impossible uh, at the IMAX. I mean, it's it, that that was an experience. It didn't take me out of the movie. It sucked me in there. I was I was leaning back in my seat, bracing myself because it was that immersive. Um, and I can't I can't imagine that from watching that uh, at my local cinema. However big the screen gets, it it just didn't have that same effect. Okay, so um, we've put the world to rights on in terms of how films should be shown. Obviously, it comes down to artistic intent and. Who are we to tell directors how their films should be seen? But um, obviously controversial. I'm sure we're going to hear more about uh, certainly the 48 frames per second stuff um, later in the year once we get to see The Hobbit. And who knows, we might like it. We'll be back in a second to talk about Avengers. Contact the AV Forums podcast. Email podcast at avforums.com. So this seems to be the Kaz podcast tonight, because Kaz has seen everything <laughs> uh, that we are discussing. So Kaz, um, tell us all about it. Well, uh, yeah, Avengers. Ever since Iron Man, like four years ago, hinted at the potential for uh, a group of special superheroes to get together in one, one grand epic blockbuster. Um, I'm guessing quite a few fans have been looking forward to this movie, um, I'm not sure I ever believed it was going to happen uh, to the point where when it was the year when it was going to get released, I was not um, hyped up and ready for it um, in the way that perhaps I am about uh, Dark Knight and even Prometheus. It, it was one of those movies which I, I almost thought to myself, well, you know, maybe wait for Blu-ray. You know, it's, it, it, um, maybe I was superheroed out. Um, maybe uh, I didn't think it was possible and couldn't see the scale of it, but actually this is this is quite a landmark event. This is something that you couldn't have envisaged um, before Iron Man. You couldn't ten years ago, people would not have expected this to come to pass. Um, this is a movie with a series of uh, leading superheroes who all have movies of their own put together and uh, just they get to kick ass as one group it's i mean it's it would be having a batman and superman movie it would be something that people aren't really even thinking about right now um and it's it's come to fruition um i i would never have expected it but they managed to make it work they it's joss whedon scripted he he's a, a bit of a hit and miss uh, writer because he was excellent on Buffy and Angel, but since then he pretty much hasn't made anything consistently work. Um, and picking him for his first big screen outing, uh, it was a superb choice. I mean, he brought so much um, humor, unexpected laugh out loud moments, and heart to a story which could have been dead before the end of the opening credits. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure plenty of people will watch it and for the first hour they will be wondering when it's going to really actually kick off. Um, but it, you know, it, it, it will have you by the end of the movie. Um, if for no other reason than the fact that Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man is still a superb lead superhero and uh, the Hulk um, he is, without a doubt, the best parts of this movie and has all the best scenes all the best action. So I think those who are prepared to actually give it a shot and uh, give the cynicism that has grown through having far too many superhero movies over the last decade and just embrace this epic movie um, will find it's the, the first of the true summer blockbusters of the year. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I've, when they announced, when Marvel announced their plans with the idea of having various. Uh, individual superhero movies all all leading towards one big you know the avengers movie uh you know i thought that's quite ambitious i mean they're talking about a four-year uh time horizon they're talking about five other movies and before that they're talking you know it, obviously it was all dependent on iron man being a hit which it was it was a massive hit so clearly once that happened they thought they've got a pretty good chance of delivering 
but um, they're fun- they were funding the movies themselves, uh, distributing them through other, un- other studios, but funding them themselves. So they were taking a huge financial gamble um, on the basis of, of some not so well-known, I mean, to be honest, the, I mean, Spider-Man's their big, big, uh, big superhero. Incredible Hulk, the f- previous Hulk movie hadn't done very well. Um, partly because I think they had the wrong director in Ang Lee, although I assume they only hired him so they could say, don't make me Ang Lee. You won't like me when I'm Ang Lee. But uh, it wasn't a big hit. They had to reboot that one with, uh, with The Incredible Hulk. Iron Man I'd never heard of in, until the film came out, um, but luckily for them it was a big hit. Uh, Thor, you know, could have been silly. and the, the Norse God of Thunder, you know, it worked actually quite well. It was a sort of Shakespearean melodrama done by Kenneth Branagh. So they picked some interesting people to direct the films. And when they picked Joss Whedon to do The Avengers, I thought, brilliant, because um, oh, you actually missed out his previous cinematic outing, which was Serenity. And he also did um, Firefly. So I knew Joss Whedon could do action. I knew he could do funny and serious. Um, and, you know, I had high hopes when I heard that he was doing it. But a bit like you, Kaz, I was kind of superheroed out, having got through five of their films already at this point, thinking, oh, is it going to be any good? Are they going to shoehorn everybody in? But, you know, I haven't seen it yet. But from what I've read and from what you've written, um, it sounds like the, the Joss Whedon in particular has delivered the goods in terms of finding moments for all those, you know, having such a big cast of uh, principal characters in one movie. You, you always got to make sure that everyone gets a bit of screen time, gets a, get a big superhero moment um, and, and have a coherent plot that makes sense. Because I, I always felt disappointed by Captain America because it was clearly, you know, designed to lead into the Avengers which meant that the plot of that film with a book-ending modern-day elements uh, kind of ruined a lot of the drama of the middle section set in the 40s during World War II. So, uh, well, yeah, it, it was a big gamble. It looks like, I mean, judging by the pre-set, pre-ticket sales, it's going to pay off. Um, and as you say, it'll be the first huge hit of the, of the summer. Yes, I, I completely uh, overlooked Serenity, I think, because I... Uh, it got swallowed up by my notion of Firefly. I, I loved all of Whedon's uh, productions but unfortunately they, they were all ended too short uh, and I can't help but worry when a director is behind and a writer because you worry that the next thing he's going to take on will go down the same route but he, he really hit one out of the park with Avengers um, and as you say you know having a, a, the right story and the right characters um, and the, the giving everybody the right screen time is all important and I think to a certain extent uh, he, he gets it all right there is enough story to keep you going a few too many MacGuffins but enough story to to keep you hooked and uh, he does give everybody time to shine um, everybody's got a scene that you'll remember them for um, and that's perhaps the most important thing about throwing together a bunch of superheroes. I, I have to say, the worst thing about the Avengers is I can't see how they're going to do uh, Captain America 2, Thor 2, uh, Iron Man 3 in the meantime. Maybe Iron Man 3, I can see that would work because Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man is a, you know, he's a man unto himself. But I, I can't see them going back to lead vehicles for the others because there's going to be an Avengers 2 everyone's going to be waiting for the Avengers too. And um, why would you want to watch one superhero when you can see six? Yeah. Hulk smash. Sounds, fan- sounds fantastic. I mean, I've not yet to see it. My, um, my, 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 both my boys want to go and see it. So I will be going to see it. Um, uh, Wednesday, I believe I believe the tickets for anyway. Um, looking forward to this one question. How long is it? And is it a film of two halves or is that two questions? <laughs> That's two questions. How long is it? It's, it's, just shy of two and a half hours. Um, you are going to feel that it's quite a long movie for the first hour, but then you, you'll get lost in it and you will not notice it's a two and a half hour movie. So the, there, there's a lot that goes on in the last hour and a half that makes you kind of forgive the fact that you have to get through the first hour of uh, setting up the characters and setting up the story to, to get there. Uh, is it a film of two halves? Um, I, I, not really. Uh, it doesn't. It's not going to continue straight on into another Avengers movie. It's a. It's a film of its own, and it's a thoroughly sort of a satisfying conclusion to that. The fact that there is a little hint mid-credits of what's going to happen in the next Avengers movie. As I said, the only thing that that does is make you wonder why they're going to bother making individual movies in the meantime. That's the only thing that little mid-credits sequence 
did for me. It made me think, well, now I want to see the next Avengers movie. I don't want to see, you know, Captain America 2. Very, very encouraging, because my only niggling doubt is uh, something in the back of my head, um, Transformers Fall of the Darkened Moon, whatever it was, where you very you had very much two halves of the films when the first bit was so crap and the last bit was too over the top. And I was a little bit apprehensive that the Avengers might have played it that way. I love Joss Whedon, so you know that kind of smoothed the way, but that was my only real niggling doubt that that might be the problem. I think that the nice thing about Avengers is that it just doesn't have a Transformers script. I mean, it's, <laughs> if, if you, it, it's Transformers with a decent script. I'm not saying that the story holds together like uh, some beautiful freaking piece, like some piece of Shakespeare. Not uh, Chinatown. <laughs> yeah, it is not Chinatown. I was actually thinking Chinatown, and I'm thinking, who's that guy? Oh, yeah, Robert Town. Um, anyway, uh, it, it's not... It's not a beautifully constructed story, but it, it's a fantastic script. I would not have expected this movie to have more laughs in it than when I went to see uh, the last comedy I saw, which was uh, 21 Jump Street, which was very funny. You know, it, this movie had more laugh-out-loud moments in, with the audience. I mean, they really got behind it. And it's not just the bits that are obviously uh, verbally hilarious, but there are some great scenes just literally where, like, Hulk will let rip. And it's just what we've been wanting to see from these characters for a long time, and which hasn't really happened before. And Joss Whedon's um, writing, from anyone who knows Joss Whedon's work, I mean, it, I know that he's a co-writer on this, and you can tell his, his, his writing isn't injected into every single sentence, but some of it is very Whedon. And it's those bits that are great. You've got Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, calling people uh, names, the rest of his teammates names, which are all film references. And if you get them all, which isn't a hard thing to do, you will be laughing, properly laughing about them. Um, and who, it seems perfect coming out of Robert Downey Jr.'s lips. He he's, it seems he's created an Iron Man who seems like he would say these things. But you can also tell it's Joss Whedon's script. And it's what makes this uh, a, a really engaging movie, even before it gets into the action. So that's where I think it'll surpass anything like Transformers. That's why early reviews uh, across the board have been generally wavering around the 8 out of 10 mark. Um, it, uh, sure, people haven't been prepared to quite go as far as a 9, a higher mark. But there are very few people who are criticizing this movie as being sort of average because it just isn't. There's a whole load of fun, and it's funny. There you go. It's exactly what you want from a film, isn't it? Well, it's exactly what you want from a pre-summer summer blockbuster. I've reached um, superhero saturation point. I couldn't care less anymore about any of them. There was a time when I felt genuinely enthused. I mean, when I heard Sam Raimi and, and Spider-Man, I mean, it, it just sound, sounded like a match made in heaven. It sounded brilliant. You just thought, you know, it's kind of light material in terms of the comic book, but then the director might bring something new to it. And so, therefore, it was this melding of two different mediums, and that was what I really enjoyed about that kind of film. It, it, it still was a bit lightweight for me, and it, it, but it was fun. Um, the rest, since then, I'm thinking... Maybe it comes from the fact that, that I, I used to collect like Ghost Rider comics and I did collect comics. And then when certain ones came out, I just thought these are terrible. No one's, no one's read the source material. No one's really that interested in them. And they're just films with people in spandex. And as for, you know, I, I mean, I, I take all Kaz's points on board. And if you love this kind of film, then, then this sounds brilliant. But I don't think this is up there with the idea of like a, a Superman, Batman, you know, Thor, Iron Man, um, Captain America. I mean, you know, these these aren't grade A superheroes anymore. These aren't the big blockbusters. I, I just the last interesting comic book adaptation I'm, I'm thinking about was maybe Hellboy 2. That was the last one that I got in any way into. Since then, I, as I say, I've just hit saturation point. I know what it's going to be. I know there are going to be a few 
perhaps slapstick moments. There are going to be a few, you know, cool. We didn't think that bad he was going to be the size he was. A few pans and quick close looks to the camera and a, a bit of a nod and a wink with the audience. It'll have a good soundtrack. It'll be big, bombastic, and everyone will go away happy. But it's it's just so damn shallow. I just I just can't get enthused about it. I'm I'm really sorry. It sounds like a completely joyless individual, but it's just something that I I just feel it's ready to die now and go back into hibernation for another you know given another decade and then come back when there are a few you know new things when someone with a bit of edge is going to start directing these things the the good the good news about this for me is is the inclusion of Joss Whedon if it didn't have his name anywhere near it I I wouldn't even countenance the idea of even so much as watching a trailer for it I, I would be happy for it to slip by me. But I think that you've hit the point right there with Whedon, because where Nolan brought sort of a darkness to comic book adaptations, I think Whedon's done just exactly what we needed for colourful, fun adaptations. Because not everything can be, in terms of comic book adaptations, it can't all be dark. I mean, these these characters that they're dealing with are, are pretty light, they're pretty colourful. And uh, Whedon has has got the heart and the soul and the humor to to make it engaging Uh, i agree with a lot of your sentiments mark i think there have been too many comic book adaptations over the last few years as i said to the point where i was of the mind that avengers would not be on my cinema watch list this year i was like do i want to do this um maybe i could just push it back i'm looking forward to dark knight but what's this avengers thing i don't even know when it's coming out in the year um when it when it came to it, I was going into it thinking uh, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing all these superheroes on the big screen, but I'm fed up with superhero adaptations. But it really isn't anything like what I would have expected. It's a lot more fun. It's what it needed to be, um, and I think I'm almost as cynical as what you're describing. Um, so I would definitely give it a shot on the basis of Whedon's writing because that that is what sets it apart from even the movies that have f- formed the Avengers in the first place. I've I've got to say I'm very much like Mark, probably more down than Mark because I've never been a comic book guy. I've never been someone to get into the superhero type of thing. And I just think for the last how long? Almost a decade now that we've just had one after the other, after the other, after the other... And there've been the odd good one that I've really enjoyed, but the ones <clears throat> I'd say the majority of the ones that I've seen, I thought no, I'd rather have something a little bit more original. I'd rather have people uh, stretching a little bit and not relying on uh, such easy characters to put into movies. And with that in mind, I had uh, no interest whatsoever in Avengers. But now that I know that Josh Whedon is behind it, because <laughs> Far- Firefly was by far the best TV program. I've ever watched. I'm going to have to go and see it now, won't I? Yes. Did you not like Iron Man? I did. I enjoyed Iron Man. But, you know, there's other stuff like Spider-Man. I mean, for crying out loud, we're getting it again this year. They're they're rebooting it again. Oh, I totally agree with that. That's utterly worthless to me. I I think that's purely... It feels like it's it's been done purely because they want to keep the franchise in-house and not lose the copyright um, tags to us. They can do the same with Batman. It's it's just a nonsense that they're churning out new reboots, uh, fresh off the old ones. Before the old ones are even finished, they're announcing the new ones they're going to do. But really, that shouldn't shouldn't put you off Avengers. Avengers, I think, is going to be around for a while, and Whedon's optioned to direct the next one as well. So it's 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 definitely worth forgiving some of uh, the cynicism that's gone on recently and just just sticking with those. Because the rest of the movies that have come before it um, just don't encompass what uh, an ensemble um, movie like this can be in the right hands. Yeah, okay. I'm going to give it a go. Um, and before we wrap up, I'm just thinking about, you know, the, the last couple of years at the cinema and then what's coming up this summer in terms of blockbusters and so on. Is there anything original? Is there anything that isn't based on a previous film or a previous character or, I mean... Is there anything original coming this year, guys? Well, I think all the big titles are reboots, remakes, offshoots. You know, you're looking at Prometheus, Hobbit, and Batman as frontrunners. 
if you want originality, you're going to have to look overseas and look at things like uh, The Raid, which is already pipped for a Hollywood remake, so don't hold your breath on that. But it's supposed to be stunning. Um, and uh, I think beyond that, maybe Tarantino's Django. Uh, there's not much else original that's going to be out, just a Bond sequel and a Bourne uh, offshoot and a Alien prequel. The only yeah, thing well, I can think of is um, uh, Pixar's Brave. It's about the only thing I can think of. Top of my head. No, I'd agree. I must admit, it is going to be a year of reboots, remakes, sequels, uh, adaptations. Um, not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's not stuff that I'm looking forward to. But yeah, I, mean, I guess the, it just shows you that modern filmmaking, this, the budgets are so massive that they don't want to take a risk like Disney did with John Carter and lose a ton of money. <laughs> You know, you're so much safer with a big name star, with an established franchise, with a sequel, with a with an established product like a, a book or um, or a comic book character. You know, these kind of things are guaranteed an opening weekend, and the the stakes are so high on a big budget film. When you're talking about budgets of 150 to 250, I think the Avengers was 250 million dollars, not including marketing costs and prints. So, you know, you're looking at an easy 300 million there. It's going to make 600 million just to break even. Um, so. So that kind of those kind of budgets and that kind of gamble, you can understand why the studios are reticent to uh, take any any risks with um, genuinely original product. Um, which is, as Kaz points, that means you have to go abroad to find the good, you know the good original, lower budget stuff like the raid. Um, that that you know, it sounds interesting. Yeah, and which is already ready for a remake. So it's a, a vicious cycle of events. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Americans won't read subtitles, will they? That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. we've we've almost run out of time before we go. Uh, Kaz, I did manage to catch up with Drive, and uh, I agreed with everything you said. <laughs> I, I oh, that's really nice to hear, Phil. We have to end there. Um, before we go, don't forget we've got a new look front page to AV Forums with a new design. Uh, so you want to know uh, which movies, games, hardware, and podcasts are the latest? Then go to the front page, and you'll see the photo slider at the top. You can choose what you want to go to straight away for the content. Also, don't forget we have a, a whole list of podcasts every month. On the 14th of this month, uh, we got the Games Podcast. On the 21st, the Home Cinema Podcast. And round about the 28th, we have the Podcast Extra. Uh, also, don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter uh, or on Facebook. Uh, Twitter is at AVForums. And you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash AVForums. All the latest news, reviews, podcasts, videos, Everything gets posted up there so you don't miss a thing from us. So we'll be back again next month. All I need to do now is thank everybody for their attendance. So thanks, Simon, Mark, Kaz and Steve. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. Thanks, Phil. And this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening. We'll catch you again very soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.